before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, is a, uh, a plaster-casted Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. You, uh, you've been in the wars. Yeah, well, I had uh, reconstructive Achilles tendon surgery on Friday, and today's, what, Monday? And I got off the pain meds yesterday, so hopefully I will be able to handle this show without making too many mistakes. Let's see if the viewers can spot the difference. It'll be interesting. Exciting exercise for one and all. Well, joining us today um, is a guy I've been trying to get on the podcast for ages, uh, Gerard Minak of Minak Advisors down in Australia. Um, Gerard is fantastic. He's a good mate of James Aitkins. Um, he's a really incredible critical thinker. He writes brilliantly about the world economy and and the world of central banks from down there in Sydney. Um, and he he contacted me a little while ago to say, you know, there's a few things on your podcast I disagree with and I'd love to chat with you about them, which just gives us a wonderful opportunity to bring another thoughtful head into this debate um, uh, and, and and get some more input into what it really is shaping up to be the big the big elephant in the room, this inflation-deflation debate. So um, what do you say, Flint? We, um, we get Gerard on. Okay, let's do it. Gerard, mate, thank you so much for joining us. We are thrilled to have you on the Endgame. Thanks for having me, Grant. Looking forward to talking to you and Fleck. So, yeah, been listening to the other podcasts and uh, it's my first ever podcast experience, I have to say. I only started listening to them a couple of months ago and the end game is where I started. That a boy? That a boy. You're, start, you're starting at the top now. There's no reason to ever do another one. No, that's right. <laughs> no, it's, there's, no turning, there's, no, there's no higher level. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Exactly right. Well, look, look, mate, just... um. Uh, you'll be familiar to many and not so familiar to others. Just give us a quick kind of pocket background so people know where you come from, and then, and then there's a ton of stuff I want to dive into with you. Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I've been doing this sort of stuff uh, since the 80s, uh, always working for sort of investment banks, uh, started off well, at an independent research crowd, then then went to uh, to BZW Barclays. Um, I didn't leave them. They left me. We became ABN. Then I ended up at Morgan Stanley, where I was variously... Uh, their developed market equity strategist and then their cross-asset strategist. And then in 2013, I, I thought I'd try and list my PB ratio, which is the ratio of how much I got paid <laughs> to how much bullshit I had to put up with, um, <laughs> and started Minac Advisors. Um, and, you know, uh, it was all about lowering the BS, um, and that has been sort of effective, I guess. Uh, the, the only downside is it's a small business. So when I ring my IT help desk, my mobile phone starts ringing, which is very disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, and you know nothing about computers, yeah, which doesn't help. Well, fortunately, I've worked out Alt-Control-Delete does fix 90% of computer problems, so... Uh, exactly right, exactly right. Well, you know, it's funny, I because um, I emailed you actually months ago to, to ask you about this and say, look, would you would you come on? You said, look, happy to at some point in the future and, you know, let's, let's wait and see what happens and when I've got something to say, I'll come on. And then, uh, and then we chatted again, and you said, you know, 
I've had a lot of thoughts about a lot of the things that your previous guests have been saying, and I disagree with some of them, and I'd love to chat about it, which is just fantastic because I think um, you know that's a big part of what we're doing is is this idea that smart people aren't always in alignment, and and there's no telling who's right and who's wrong. It's it's the quality of the thought process that goes into it that's so important. And you know, I, I don't know anyone with a, with a thought process as as high on the quality scale as you. So I would love to to dig into some of this stuff and, and i think um i think a lot of the stuff that, that that you were listening to was perhaps the inflation deflation debate so i think perhaps i'd like to start there and i guess the, the smart way is to is to get you to talk a little bit about what you agree with and what you disagree with so we can have a framework for the rest of the discussion absolutely look i mean just by way of background i've i've done the same sort of flip as as russell napier um for years I was telling people that the world was turning Japanese um, since Larry Summers uh, called it secular stagnation. I'm always for having the sexiest brand name, so I'm a secular stagnationist. And that, that had been my framework for for really 20 years since the aftermath of the tech bubble. Um, but I, I now think things are changing uh, and the key to me is we, we're moving to an era of fiscal dominance. Uh, the COVID crisis has been the catalyst for that. I always, I had argued since the GFC that the next downturn, whenever it was going to come along, would be the catalyst for this shift to fiscal dominance. Of course, I didn't see a pandemic coming, but it has proved to be the thing that's flipped the switch. And the thing about moving to fiscal policy, in my view, is the, the key economic problem of secular stagnation is the idea that we have an excess of saving. In other words, planned or anticipated uh, saving in the private sector exceeds planned or anticipated capex. So that's what gives economies that suffer secular stagnation that soggy, uh, suboptimal, disinflationary feel. Now, I have to express it in terms of planned investment and planned saving, because in a closed economy, and the world is still a closed economy, actual investment and actual saving have to be the same. The question therefore becomes, well, what needs to adjust to bring the plans that are mismatched into alignment in, in next post sense? And of course, what normally needs to adjust is interest rates, which is why it's almost a proof that we've been in a secularly stagnant world that interest rates have been trending down for three yeah. or four decades. Now, if the problem is excess saving in the private sector, governments running deficits can be an effective antidote. It doesn't reverse the underlying causes of secular stagnation, but it can counteract the economic consequences of a private sector that has excess saving. So for me, the key decisive shift is that we are seeing sustained large budget deficits. And if that continues, then I think that brings the curtain down on the secular stagnation era. Where I disagree uh, with Russell is two things. Firstly, timing. Not that that's necessarily that yep. important, but we had a debate, um, oh, it must be six months ago, about whether there'd be serious inflation in 2021, and we had to make it 2021 because we agreed if we started to talk about 2022 or 2023, we'd be in furious agreement, so we had to find somewhere where we disagree. But the other more profound disagreement is, is what's, what's important, what's the change? And for me, it's fiscal policy. If we simply had 
central banks doing QE without the fiscal, well, we know what that turns out like, and that's the post-GFC cycle. QE is a, is a monumentally ineffectual macro stimulant. I'm not even sure it does a lot for asset prices as an aside, but it's, it's an ineffectual macro stimulant. Um, so the active ingredient for me is the fiscal, and that, that points the way to where the risks are because we all can see that, that the right tail risk, that politicians go crazy and we end up with completely unacceptable inflation. I actually still think the bigger tail risk is the left-hand tail risk, that the politicians chicken out and they flip back to austerity prematurely. And if you think that's not plausible, well, I'll give you a couple of examples. Firstly, Japan has repeatedly tightened fiscal policy over the last two or three decades and repeatedly nobbled promising expansions. And already now in this cycle, we've got people like the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the UK and the equivalent down here in Australia talking about the, the need to at some stage go to budget repair. So it seems to me uh, the, the tail risks are, are both there. Uh, and I'd almost argue that the, the fatter tail risk is that we don't see the follow-through. Um, but anyway, that's, that's for down the track. That's for a few years down the track because there's clearly enough momentum in the economy today to make 2020 and probably 2021 uh, very warm macro years. Fascinating. I mean, I, there's, there's so much in there I want to dig into. I, I guess the... I don't think I can let you throw in something as as flip as as an aside. I don't think QE's had that much of an effect on asset prices without digging into your thoughts behind that, because obviously that is at odds with with so many people. And I know you've thought about it carefully, so I'd love to hear that that rationale. Uh, if if I had to say my largest single uh, unsuccessful one man campaign in the last thirty years is to tell people central banks don't matter as much as they make out. Um, I just it just drives me bonkers. Um, and people say, have you read the latest uh, Fed speech? I go, no, I don't read Fed speeches. I don't read I don't read central banker speeches. Um, you know, and the reality is they are reacting to economic circumstance. Um, they they could be replaced by algos, and and we probably wouldn't notice. And they'd probably be as effective. Um, and when you look at QE. Of course, the view is, well, you know, the, the money's gone somewhere and low rates lead to high asset prices. It, it's just not true. Um, I mean, if you look at global equities, the yield on the, on the MSCI All Country Index in, in the decade after the expansion after the GFC, it was higher. The yield was higher than in the prior cycle. And the yield in that prior cycle was higher than the cycle before. In other words, we've gone through the last three cycles where global equities have derated on average, whereas bond yields or policy rates have stepped down on average. The, the two things have crossed over. Now, th this is absolutely consistent with history where you can see repeated examples where very low rates are often associated with equities that are getting cheaper. And that's absolutely a case of... Uh, correlation, not causation. The simple point is the macro conditions that lead to very low interest rates almost always are a problem for equity earnings. And as a result, equity markets derate. And you can see that now. If low rates are the key to high equity valuations, why doesn't Japan have the most expensive equity market in the world? 
In fact, if QE is the key to equity markets, then when the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is three or four times the size of the Fed's relative to their own domestic GDP, why hasn't Japan had the best performing assets in, in, in the last 10 years? What has differentiated the Fed and the US is nothing to do with rates. It's that they, the equity market, was able to grow earnings in a slow growth environment. The US was the only major market to achieve that. If you look at earnings outside the US, so the MSCI or country index, excluding the US, earnings today are no higher than they were in 2007, 2008. So you've had 13, 14 years of zero EPS growth. Of course, completely different in the US. But what's interesting about the US is that difference effectively reflects half a dozen companies. If I pull the FANGs and Microsoft out of, out of the S&P, guess what? There's been no earnings growth since 2007 either. So the, the, the fact that the US has re-rated is, is, is a reflection of the fact that it's been the only major market to grow earnings. And I absolutely agree. If you can grow earnings in a low-rate environment, you will get re-rated as a reward because if earnings growth is scarce, the premium on being able to grow earnings goes up. But that's Wait, what's made I, I got to ask you a question because you kind of lost me there for a sec. If we pull out the fangs and we lose the growth, but we still get the re-rating, isn't that a contradiction in the fact that QE had something to, to, to do with why? I mean, we can't anoint all the other companies as growing just because some did. Uh, the re-rating of the S&P X, the fangs, is, is quite small. It, 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 the fangs explain almost all the re-rating of the S and P. I mean, but, but I can look at I can look at valuations of companies that I've known for 15, 20 years, and the valuations are all substantially higher, and they're not fang companies. Uh, well, if if you if, if I look at the prospective PE of the S and P five hundred or the S and P four nine four, so pull out the fangs. Okay, it's basically gone sideways since two thousand and. 13, 14. There has been some re-rating before that. I, I agree with that. Um, but what's interesting is that that re-rating has not really been associated with anything other than some, I guess, probably passive flows in my view. Um, and it's not it's not material to the outperformance of the US. The, the, the two key things that have led to the US outperformance in the 2008, post-2008 period has been the ability to grow earnings and the outperformance and the re-rating of the FANGs. The FANGs have absolutely re-rated. If you look at their PE right. relative to the rest of the market, uh, they were actually trading at a small discount in 2013. By the peak, you know, a, a few months ago, they'd got to 100% PE premium to the rest of the market. And I need to emphasise, I mean, I'm a strategist. I don't, I don't get into the weeds on individual companies, but I will make this comment. The collective market cap of those six stocks, the FANGs plus Microsoft, is now larger than every other equity market in the world. Uh, it's larger than the US corporate bond market. And, and rather humbling for me seeing in Australia, four of them individually are worth more than the ASX 200. So uh, there are only six companies, but these are behemoths. These are an asset class almost unto themselves. And they have largely been responsible for the outperformance of, of U.S. equities versus the rest of the world. And what, and what about things like um, 
real estate, for example. I mean, obviously, the real estate markets around the world have have skyrocketed as well. We've, you know, it just it feels like that money's leaked when it's available to be borrowed so cheap. Not necessarily the, the QE purchases, but but do you look at that uh, stuff well, as well? But Grant, there, there you've touched upon something different. Uh, for me, absolutely the most important um, bubble-blowing influence of the last three or four decades uh, has not been the Fed's discretionary rate policy or the discretionary rate policy of any other central bank in the world. It's been financial deregulation, or as I call it, misderegulation. I mean, how else do you explain the fact that we have inflated so many bubbles over the last 30 years, whereas uh, we had very low rates in, 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 the, in the second half of the 40s and the 50s. I mean, the Fed back then was, remember, the first experience of yield curve control. It was suppressing long-end rates. Why, why didn't that blow a succession of bubbles? Because it was very hard to get your hands on the credit. Uh, once we deregulated the banking system, and, and the private sector could go, you know, you beaut, let's go out there and borrow money. And that's been one of the defining features of the last three decades. And, I mean, it's staggering how much, how much borrowing has been done to enhance investment returns. And I put it like that because people keep on confusing the change in debt with, with saving behaviour. The, the two need not be related. Take Japan as an example. It remains the world's most indebted economy by some way. And yet it became the world's most indebted economy all the while being a saving economy. It's run current yeah. account surpluses. So yeah, that's a great point. How, how does a country that's saving, saving, saving get so indebted? Well, because it was overwhelmingly borrowing money to buy pre-existing assets. Initially, the world's most expensive housing stock then you had the insurance companies that were famously going around the world buying trophy buildings, and there's that great story about an insurance company that bought a, a, a building on Manhattan and that settled. Uh, before they settled, they'd done the contract. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he rang up the vendor and said, oh, I need to renegotiate the price. And the vendor said, no way. He said, no, 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 I need to push it up because another insurance company's uh, bought a more expensive building, but I want to have the most expensive building in the world. So can you, we agree to push up the price? Of course, the vendor said, yeah, I can, I can, I can accommodate that request. Um, and and it's, it's very similar uh, in, in, if, you, if you look at the US. I mean, most of the increase in private sector debt has not been to fund CapEx or fund excess consumption. To take the US corporate sector as a great example. It's, it's massively levered up in the post-GFC cycle at a time of record profits and quite anemic capex. So what's it been doing? Well, we all know what it's been doing. It's been buying back its own shares. Yeah. This is the factor. Um, but importantly, what that tells you is when you see liquidity, whatever that means, but let's, let's make it money supply. Um, money supply growth is a function of the private sector, creating credit, borrow bank. In other words, when I see credit growth, I go, ah, people are bullish. But that's quite different to saying the Fed printed money and that had to go into the system. At the end of the day, when the Fed does QE, it creates bank reserves. Bank reserves are not part of money supply. You can't go to the pub and buy a pint with a bank reserve. It's not, it's not currency. So this is where I distinguish between, uh, you know, the, the excessive focus on the Fed and creating liquidity, 
to what I think is the reality, which is the private sector is bullish and is willing and able to borrow, to invest, and that's all being absolutely required or facilitated by financial sector deregulation. It occurs to me, though, that that's a, that's a little too uh, clinical relative to the way the markets work in reality. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, and this is not particularly the it's an expansion of, of a, a point you made. A lot of people, you know, um, uh, that don't think it's possible that we're going to get to inflation um, always come back to the, well, we need the banks to lend. And and I'm sure that we do. But the, the part of it is when they say that, well, when the Fed does QE, it always stays in the banking system. And, and that's not exactly the case because, for instance, when the liquidity leaks out through the financial system in ways you can't track every single step. I remember in the 80s trying to figure out why, how come when they were buying all bills, for instance, instead of doing match sales, you know, that's a, that's a liquidity injection. And, you know, it, is, it was all in the fixed income world, but lo and behold, stocks, you know, stocks tended to respond. Now, um, I've heard it's the collateral function and things like that, but my whole career, I've seen that when the Fed starts on its liquidity business, irrespective of what goes on with bank loans, some money does leak into the system. And money also leaks into the economy with, 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 with the buybacks. The corporations are doing, are, sorry, um, uh, corporations issue stock options and the madness of the crowd takes the market up and the companies buy them back. So um, th- th- I think, or I, I firmly believe there's an element of liquidity that gets into the, uh, into the, into the financial markets and the economy away from just bank loans. Is, is that something that you're, is that an idea that you're diametrically opposed against or? Uh, no, uh, look, there, there's some secondary effects and I would argue, you know, there's almost a placebo effect to the extent that people think the Fed doing stuff means that it's going to do stuff. It can be self-fulfilling. But, you know, I'd contrast uh, some people's near obsessive focus on the Fed and how it can affect asset prices through its, its liquidity operations, then, then how come the BOJ, which has been, you know, an order of magnitude more aggressive in these things, has been monumentally unsuccessful? Uh, and I would I'll, say... I'll, I'll take a crack at that. Yep, yep. Because, uh, uh, and, 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 and this is something I, I think that you're particularly going to be helpful at sorting out for me anyway, maybe others as well. That, that, that's always the juxtaposition. Well, if that worked, why didn't it work in Japan? It occurs to me that comparing capitalism in Japan to capitalism in in America, even though we've badly bastardized it in the last 20 years, is radically different. Particularly, you know, there's there's no there's no immigration in Japan. Um, You know, uh, the way their corporate corporate Japan works with the Koretsus and the way they do things maybe is changing now. But it seems to me that the brand, the quote unquote brand of capitalism that they have over there is sort of stifles all the animal spirits of capitalism, which is the thing that makes capitalism go. So I always say, well, I can't compare Japan and America directly for that reason. So you could tell me why that's a sloppy bit of logic. No, no, no. I mean, that's a good point. Uh, here's my response. Firstly, uh, I did pick on Japan, but I could equally say that, you know what, 
the central bank balance sheets in the UK, Japan, Eurozone are all bigger yep. than the Fed's balance sheet relative to the US. So, so okay. it's not just a Japan versus US, it's, it's what makes the US different. That's the first point. Japanese corporates, I mean, this is that's a conversation for a different day. I mean, I'm, I'm very bullish on Japan. I think they have transformed their corporate sector. They've learned capital discipline. And what they actually got to pre-pandemic was their profit share of GDP at easily at an all-time high with CapEx quite low. The gap is free operating cash flow. They've delevered. They've got much better ROAs. I mean, it's, it's turning around. It's just not mm-hmm. recognised by the market yet. They're mm-hmm. even doing buybacks, some of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's a positive story there. So I, I don't want to overstate the difference okay. between capitalism in, in a corporate sense. There are differences. The difference I would focus on is the, the willingness of uh, almost everybody in the US, from, from, from corporates to, to asset owners to regulators, to permit and almost encourage short-term maximising behaviour, the whole, the whole cult of buybacks, quarterly reports, the use of leverage. I mean, I worked, I worked in investment bank for 30 years. Um, you know, almost every smart and clever investment strategy dreamt up over the last 30 years effectively boiled down to somehow deploying leverage into a structure to improve mm-hmm. returns. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at debt to GDP in the US, if you can keep, keep the, the chart in your mind's eye, the common one is non-financial sector debt to GDP. So households, corporates, and government, it sits at about 360% of GDP. Okay, that's interesting. Now let's sit in financial sector debt, but don't do all the intra-sector netting because we've got yeah. these daisy chains of debt. Yeah. You know what that pushes the number to? About 1,000% of GDP. Ah. I mean, it's just, it's just monumental. And, of course, through a 40-year trend decline in rates, there were still periods of pain by being too levered, 08, 09 comes to mind. But for every one year where being too levered caused financial pain, there's probably seven or eight where it was pleasurable. So the pleasure to pain ratio from leverage was monumentally slanted through a secular decline in rates. Now, my point going forward, if the secular decline in rates is starting to reverse, that won't mean, mean leverage is always inadvisable, but it's going to start to tip that pain to pleasure ratio. You're going to have more periods of pain than pleasure than you've had over the last four decades if the trend in rate starts to go up. Um, so these are the things that I think have been critical. And so I don't want to, um, you know, I've got to acknowledge, I mean, the, the combination of financial deregulation, which I think is absolutely crucial, that the trend decline in rates, And here I will make an absolute uh, admission, but I think it's worthwhile making because it's going to be a difference going forward. The way the Fed treated financial markets with kid gloves, mollycoddled them, particularly in the aftermath of the GFC. Now, let's just look at that because we could see financial markets saying jump and the Fed saying how high. I mean, that was pretty obvious. But think about what was going on then. In the aftermath of the GFC, fiscal was a no-show. So everything had to be driven by monetary policy. Most of the world's important central banks very quickly exhausted conventional rate tools. So we went to a world of QE. Now, 
how is QE meant to stimulate the real economy? Broadly speaking, policymakers pointed to three channels. One was to flatten the curve, and that would hopefully create demand for credit growth. Turns out it didn't really, but anyway. The second uh, unspoken channel, or said very softly, softly, was currency depreciation. The trouble is, if everybody's doing it, <laughs> yeah. the only thing they depreciated against was gold. Um, and the third one was the wealth effect. Now, all the wealth effect is, is the idea if I can make you feel richer, you'll save a little less. Yeah. In other words, financial markets became the principal conduit, the central bank stimulus into the real economy. So no wonder they, they were so obsequious towards financial markets. Everything's changed now. We're no longer relying on the wealth effect, which, by the way, didn't show up anyway. Um, fiscal is now the driver of policy. And my one of the implications of that going forward is I don't think central banks are going to jump in the same way, in the same responsiveness to financial market turbulence. Of course, they'll still look at financial markets for some uh, read on some variables that they're interested in. Of course, if financial markets absolutely collapse, they'll take a note. But to use the old cliche, if there's still a Fed put, I think the strike price is going to be lowered dramatically in this cycle compared to price cycles because fiscal is the main game and central banks are now simply accomplices in that, enablers. They don't need financial markets to be well-behaved as part of their economic game plan, and that's going to be a big change. Let's see. We need a correction to test this thesis. But as I said, yeah. I think the strike price on the Fed put has dropped. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And what a, what a great way to put it. You know, as, as I listen to this, Gerard, it really makes me think this placebo effect comment you made, because you're absolutely right. What, what it's been about is liquidity, right? What the Fed put has essentially been is that there will be abundant liquidity. And, you know, as you talk about this, and I'm thinking about what that means for people, it is, it's the green light to borrow more. And, you know, what's interesting recently, uh, as I think about the implications of what you've just talked about with the, the stri strike price moving on that put, you know, we've had two events in the last three months. And Bill and I's mutual friend, Michael Schneider, who you may know from down there, uh, wrote to us about this this week. We've seen a long fund and a short fund both have massive margin calls in a market that's essentially going sideways. So when I think about that idea that liquidity has been potentially withdrawn or at least that that signal is changing we we kind of have some proof that the liquidity situation is shifting even if marginally yes and the other event i'd point to grant is is simply the backup in long end rates which right you know, is, is is massive um massive and yet what's the response oh well you go, the economy is better. I guess the market should reflect that. And I think there ultimately can be a level that long-end rates would get to that the Fed would start to become a little bit disconcerted and presumably dial up their QE. Um, but this this is this is uh, a much more blasé response to what is now a very large move in long-end rates than I think you would have uh, expected Um in, in the aftermath of the GFC when, as I said, the wealth effect was was a huge, a huge channel that the banks were hoping was going to stimulate growth as a result of their low-rate policy. Um, 
So we'll see. We'll see. Um, I just think the world has changed in a number of important ways if we do shift to fiscal policy rather than monetary policy being the principal tool of cycle management. And many of the most important investment trends the last three or four decades will start to reverse. And that's that's a huge change in framework for us as investors. Um, and I, I'm not sure it, it's going to make it harder in some ways. Um, I mean, one of the obvious upshots from the last four decades, long bonds gave you equity-like returns. Yeah. Long bonds were persistently and unusually inversely correlated to equities. Put those two things together. Bonds were a magnificent in hedge for equity risk and you got paid. Your insurance device paid you. Now, I don't know about you, when I insure my house or my car, the insurance company wants me to pay them. For three decades, the way you insured your equity risk paid you. Wow. Now, looking forward, it's, in, it's impossible for bonds to give the same returns going forward as they have in the last three or four decades, point one. Point two is, is the equity bond correlation. Now, I, I look at a, at a sort of three and five-year correlations to give you a sense of the structural correlation. In the US, we have never seen two decades like the last two decades. It was reliably aggressively inverse equity bond correlation. If you look back to the start of the you know, 1900, you only ever had brief periods of such sustained inverse correlation. Now, what drives correlation? My view, it's all about the inflation regime. And there's a remarkably clear <clears throat> demarcation for the US. Once you get CPI above 2.5% for, I, I do it for three years, just to smooth it out, when you're below 2.5%, you are often, but not always, see inverse equity bond correlation. Once you go above 2.5%, you never see it. So if you think the Fed is going to achieve its inflation target, which, of course, it expresses in the PCE deflator, and given the usual spread between the PCE and the CPI, you're going to be in a world where that correlation flips positive. So now you've got two problems for your bond portfolio. It's not giving you the returns it used to, and it's not giving you inverse correlation. The third problem is at these low yields, even now, uh, duration is stretched. The volatility of these things is much larger than they have been historically. In fact, if you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Long Treasury Bond Index, which goes back to 1973, right now it's in its first ever bear market its first ever 20% plus drawdown. So all of a sudden, you're going from a world where bonds were giving you equity-like returns with the fantastic property being inversely correlated to equities and with lower vol than equities, all three's gone. You've got lower returns, none of that pleasurable correlation, and they're actually more volatile. There's been more 10% plus drawdowns on your long bonds than there has been for equities since 08. Wow, that's a transformation that a lot of people have got to get their head around. And particularly if you're managing you know, a multi-asset strat and you've been relying on, on bonds to, as I said, provide a fantastic, costless, in fact, profitable hedge, what do you do now? And oh, by the way, if correlation does flip, 
I hope you're not running a risk parity fund. Yeah. That causes some hiccups. I was thinking right. about that. Right. You know, I mean, so. <laughs> yeah. Boy, past performance is no guarantee of future success. Never a truer world said if we see the correlations flip. Obviously, if we're going to have a period of higher inflation, it seems to me that the, there's a very large chunk of the investment uh, community, professional investment community, as well as people at home, that have never really experienced much inflation. And their muscle memory is that it can't really happen. So um, I have a, a friend who was a successful bond manager, very smart guy, and he's willing to listen to the story, but he thinks all we're going to have is a scare, you know, where the data is going to run hot starting pretty soon because of the year over year comps and all the stories we all know about, but then it's all going to settle back down. I think in his particular case, he's not certain, but he's pretty sure. And I think that's probably the con- the conventional wisdom is we can't really get inflation going in any way that's not exactly what the authorities want, so to speak. Do you have any sort of idea or fun way to think about how you think that might change? Or we're just going to, it's just going to be one day the market's going to go like, oh my God, this is going to stay worse longer. It doesn't even matter. Uh, I, I think... Um this is the hot topic. Um, pe- people are talking more hawkish on, on inflation, but I absolutely think that talking the talk, not walking the walk. I, I, I don't think people on average have in any way inflation-proofed their portfolios. I'm not even yeah. sure what it means to inflation-proof your portfolio because inflation is is almost the universal solvent for equity for, for, for asset valuations. I mean, there's so few places to hide. Um, commodities of some of my old, uh, a couple of my old colleagues, um, brewing individuals, Ben Funnel and Turn Drasma at uh, Man GLG, have just put out a, a very nice academic report which you can download, looking at um, what's an effective hedge against inflation in in you know, many examples going back over a hundred years. And the only one that's got a consistent positive hit rate is commodities. But you can see from people's exposures to commodities, no one, no one is there in the size that's appropriate if you really do think an inflation problem is coming. Now, t- timing is important, um, and this was the essence of the debate I had with Russell. I, I don't think yeah. this is going to be the year where it's a big problem. Um, I take your point, Fleck, there, there will be base effects that will spike inflation measures uh, in April, May this year. I, I think we then settle down to a, to a degree. The key indicators I'm looking at are labour market indicators and um, I think they are going to take longer to flash uh, sort of red flags than output type indicators and there's an unusual disconnect between the two at the moment. That's because we've seen this amazing bifurcation in consumer spending in most developed economies. Spending on goods gone through the roof, spending on services is lagging. I mean, we know why that happened because... We all got sent a cheque and we were locked up, couldn't go to the pub, so we, we blew it on the internet and bought stuff. Um, but what that means is I think the labour market is the indicators that the central banks are going to watch. Um, I don't think they tighten to a sufficient degree to get inflation-generating wage pressures until well into next year. But to, to go back to the essence of your question, um, yeah, look, I mean, yeah. We've all got grey hair. In fact, I've got the hair I've got left is grey. At least I can remember inflation. 
Um, and that's partly because here in Australia, we joined the, the, the ranks of the low inflation world a decade after everybody else. Um, but for most people, it's it's something they read about in textbooks if or you need to go to uh, to an emerging economy to see what it's like. Um, and it, it comes back to the, the consequences of this 40-year trend breaking um, and reversing. Now, I, I'm not in the camp that says we get even 70s like inflation. I, I don't think that's likely. Um, but certainly inflation at levels that are, are going to penalise asset valuations is entirely plausible. Um, and that's also because it's going to go hand in hand with rate increases that will penalise asset valuations. But I think that's a 2022, uh, 2023 story, not necessarily a 2021 story. I think this year the focus is going to be on the, spe- the better macro, um, the real growth. And, I mean, here's a factoid for you. I think if consensus forecasts are right, um, this will be the first year since 1976 that the US is going to grow faster than China. So it's going to be a great growth year. Um, and I think, therefore, the focus is going to be on that, and that's going to lead to a big rotation in equity markets. It's only next year when we see the labour market tight and sufficient and we start to see the wage pressures come through that markets are going to go, uh-oh, um, hold on, um, this is getting a little too hot for us. And uh, you start to see the adverse consequences of that. So 2021 will kind of be this the sweet spot, you know, not too hot, not too cold, kind of worried about this, but it's not too bad. We're, we're, it'll be kind of like, I hate to use Goldilocks, but it's kind of like all the problems are they're far enough out that they won't matter and the, and the growth and all the good stuff will kind of carry the day. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's a little too bullish because... Okay, okay. Um, so, I mean, look, it's interesting. At the start of the year, yeah, you do the usual year-ahead conversations with people. And I, I thought the consensus at the start of the year uh, was as tightly clustered as I can remember it. And I, I reflected on why that was the case, and I thought, I know why. Normally in these year-ahead uh, discussions, two of the biggest uncertainties are firstly whether GDP growth is going to be better or lower than the year before. And secondly, whether central banks are going to tighten or ease. Well, guess what? This year we need the answer to both those things. Not only do we know the answers, but um, it was growth is better but no central bank tightening. That, as every playbook will tell you, is, as you said, Fleck, the Goldilocks Goldilocks part of the cycle. Um, So why not be bullish? Well, my only response to that is we sort of knew that last year and that's why... Um, last year, if you look at global equities, gave you, I think it's a 17% total return. Uh, commodities X energy gave you 15%. Uh, most fixed income measures globally gave you high single digit, low double digit. I mean, last year was a cracking return year in what was the worst macro year since the war. So we can't have our cake and eat it too. I think returns this year will be modest, but I think the big story and I think this had something to do with that um, that fund that went under, uh, that ran into some rocks, is the rotation story. That as things warm up, we've already got equities at levels that reflect the fact that this is going to be a good year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a- as we get numbers punching out really hot, we- we're no longer in the world that we were after the GSC. 
in the world after the GFC, in a sluggish, tepid environment, what we were desperate to find were companies that could either maintain earnings, they were your bond proxies, or if you could, grow them, which was, as we've discussed, the, the fangs and a handful of others. That scarcity value on the ability to grow earnings meant that these things got re-rated. In the current environment, everybody's going to be able to grow earnings. So now we're after operational leverage. We want to maximise our EPS bang for the buck. And that means you're going to completely different markets, completely different sectors, and stylistically, you're going to go from growth to value. So that, to me, is the big story of this year. It's one level below the overall asset class return level, and it's all about, um, as I said, a cycle is starting where the ability to grow earnings will no longer be a rare, a rare ability. It's going to be common, and that means that you're going to drift towards different stocks and sectors. Um, but these are expensive markets, so we're not going to see a, a big, massive re-rating because we will see periodic concerns about looming inflation and rates. But I think that really bites hard next year. Yeah, this is really, really fascinating to me, all this, because what you talked about there, Gerard, about portfolios not being ready for this. And as we've kind of gone through this search for this, the, you know, the, the mythical end game, it's really morphed into a search for how we get from here to there. You know, whatever there is, we don't know what the next thing is. And I've been kind of wrestling with this inflation thing for a while now and as you just said there pointing out that when inflation comes back there isn't a portfolio in the world essentially that is set up correctly to not only not profit from it but suffer through it and so as I'm listening to you it occurs to me that you know the end game may actually just be inflation that may be the end game and everything that that brings with it a shift to an inflationary environment changes absolutely everything and our end game may actually be a function of the return of inflation rather than the central banks having the money uh, having the the, uh, the printer press taken away from us as bill so perfectly coined it well but inflation would do that yeah no 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 absolutely yeah. would but it, but it's really it's not I mean, it's not necessarily what, a that is what's good that's that is what would do right. that right so right but the, but the end game then becomes not oh my god it's the end of central bank omnipotence it's how the hell do we actually inflation-proof our portfolios today because it's a problem we face very quickly? Which is a, an amazingly tricky problem because, as I said, inflation is corrosive of the vast majority of, of asset valuations. Um, now, the one thing I'd say before we get into, the, into that is, you know, I, I can't see how we... We shift from a world that was, you know, had this amazing disinflationary bias for so many years, uh, where economies were running uh, cold or cool, uh, where we may end up in economies that are running too hot. I, I can't see how you go from cold to hot without going through that just right phase for a while. And in this context, I mean just right in an in economic and political context because markets are forward-looking. They, they could see that this coming. But I think that this is what this year is going to be about, that we see big strides in employment. We, we see unemployment reduction. As we move into next year, we see wage growth. I mean, from a political perspective, this is all going to feel terrific. Um, and if there's any laggards in the world, uh, there's going to be someone, someone else in the political system going, why, why don't we do what Mr Biden's done? 
that hasn't ended badly there yet. I mean, you know, and, and, and so this, this spreads by demonstration effect. And where, where does that end? Uh, well, it's, it's way too much to expect politicians to, to show too much restraint when everything's feeling good. But this is where central banks come in, into their own. And, um, you know, I've, I've said for some time, monetary policy is amazingly asymmetric. Um, I think it's been ineffectual as a stimulant for some time. Um, but we all know it can operate as a restraint because in a levered world, to lift rates um, causes pain. So this, this is where we get to uh, the requirement or, or the, the expectation that the Fed will respond at some stage, and I think they will. Um, we can debate that. But that's why ultimately I don't think we get runaway 70s-style inflation. I can absolutely see a, a, a peak, a spike, particularly if you add in energy, which could at some stage in the next through, few years really generate a lot of inflation. Um, yeah, we, we could have headline inflation at, at five, um, core inflation three, three and change. Uh, I can see that, and that would be very, I think, uncomfortable for financial markets. I, I doubt very much that we would get high single digit, um, and that, that view is absolutely dependent on central banks retaining their independence um, and, and responding as, as they should according to their mandate. Well, as a practical matter... We don't have to get it right as to how high the amplitude is for a while, right? I mean, you got to go through the first phase if you're ever going to get to the other phase. And who knows where we will? I, I see. I get asked the question all the time. Well, is this all going to end in hyperinflation? I, I say, wait a second. We got to start first. I mean, for all you golfers out there, you know, you don't get the putter out when you're on the tee, right? So, I mean, it's sufficient to understand that the conditions are such that it's very likely that we're going to have a regime change from the disinflation, you know, and, and to use that as a short version of what you've said, to something else. And the something else has a good chance of becoming uh, unfriendly to various components of financial markets uh, relatively easily. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go from a straight line there to someplace else. We're going to have variables are going to move against each other and central banks will do things and mistakes will get made and leverage may bite. And we don't know, but I think if you're right, and, and I happen to agree with you that we're having some kind of a regime change here. If you get that part right, you're doing really well. No, that, that, that's the, that's the single most important takeaway that we are, this is not a cyclical turn we're seeing. This is a secular turn in my view. And, um, of course, there are always cycles. And if you look at interest rates, there were cycles over the last four decades. The problem was in the US, if you look at the 10-year, we had four decades where the 10-year kept on making lower lows, lower highs, right? So that was the secular trend. Now, there's going to continue to be cycles over the next 10 years. My hunch is it's going to be higher highs, higher lows. And that's that's what I'm trying to, 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 to forecast and analyse. The other point I'd make that I think is also part of this um, secular uh, change is the way the political winds have shifted. And, um, you know, we, we're going to see um, a, a change in the attitude towards corporates. Um, you know, Janet Yellen has just come out and said, you know, we should try and get an OECD-wide minimum tax rate for, for, for multinationals. Um, you know, Mr Biden is... is uh, arguing we should increase the corporate tax rate to fund some of his spending. I mean, 
This is a reversal in what's been very pro-capital policies over the last uh, three decades. Policies, I think, actually did contribute in some way to secular stagnation because uh, of the factors I think caused it. Um, one of the most important, I, I thought, was growing corporate power. Um, if they start to reverse, then that's going to be directly unfriendly uh, to, to investors. And it really is the mirror image of the last three or four decades, which for Joe Average kind of sucked. Um, for the plutocracy, it was fantastic. And you can see that exactly that trend is going to reverse. Um, and that that's going to be true um, throughout the developed world. And once again, I, I mentioned before that Chancellor of the Exchequer in, in, the, in the UK, I mean, it's one thing for the Mr Biden, a Democrat president, to say let's increase corporate taxes. It's another thing when a Conservative Party Chancellor of the Exchequer is saying let's increase corporate taxes. I mean, this has become a bipartisan um, thing and obviously in Washington one of the few areas of bipartisanship is everybody hates Facebook. So uh, you can sort of see the tech clash coming to fruition as well. Um, all of these things have implications for investors and as I said with that tech clash goes back to the point that those big six tech companies are asset class size. This is not a boutique issue for investors. This, this hits something that's been massive over the last 10, 15 years. Joe, let's, let's talk about what I, I sense from something you threw in a little while ago. You see like some others do as the tipping point, and that's wage growth, um, particularly within the context of what the RBA has done recently, which, which there'll be people listening to this that don't know about, and you flagged it to me, so I don't want to take any of the limelight. I want to let you talk about what they've done and why it's so important. Yeah, no, uh, I think the RBA has made explicit what a number of other important central banks will make implicit, and it's the focus on, on wages and labour income. And what we've seen throughout the developed world over the last three decades is labour income shares of GDP uh, decline. And what the RBA has said in response is that they will not tighten monetary policy until wage growth is at a level compatible with them hitting their inflation target. Now, the upshot of that is that almost any other source of inflation is going to be dismissed as transitory. Hey, if we're not seeing wage growth, and for those that don't know, the RBA has a marvellously flexible target. It's a range, 2 to 3%. It's over the life of a cycle. How long is a cycle? I don't know. Um, and they don't even tell you which measure they're focusing on. So they've got wriggle room on the level, wriggle room on the duration, and wriggle room on, on the... On the, um, on the, on the uh, the specific index they're targeting. Um, now, let's say it's the midpoint of that target, 2.5%. Let's say we can hope to get 1% to 1.5% productivity growth. That means they won't tighten until wages are running at 4%. And that's a good way to square the circle in a predicament that I think people like the Fed may face because, you know, as we've heard from the Fed, um, they want to make... Uh, not full employment, maximum employment, one of their key objectives. Now, we all know there's a problem when you've got, you know, one, one, one instrument and, and uh, more than one target. How do you reconcile that? Um, well, one way to do that is to make one of your targets an intermediate target for your longer one. And I think what the Fed will move to implicitly or explicitly is something very similar to what the RBA has done. In other words, they will dismiss 
any source of inflation as transient except when it becomes wages. And, okay, we're very used to central banks dismissing things like energy prices as, as transitory and they're not going to respond to that. But the US is unusual in that its consumer price index, I know the PCE deflator is different, but the, the consumer price index gives such a large weight to shelter. Now, we're seeing a boom in the US housing market. Uh, we're seeing rental vacancy rates decline. I could easily envisage that next year shelter is, is becoming a serious contributor to core inflation. Add on that that you've got energy adding potentially 1% or 2% to annual inflation rates. You could have a recipe where core where headline inflation is over three, core over two, but wages grow still quite anemic. And the Fed going, you know what? All this shelter stuff, all this food and energy stuff is transitory. We're not going to tighten until the labour market is, is tight enough that it's generating decent wage growth. I mean, there's a gap between what the markets want and what the central banks want <laughs> that opens up some area for conflict. But Oh, yeah. Um, as I said, it's it's the new modern central banking focus on on wages, um, and if they are going to make that a really central indicator for them to watch, um, then that's something we need to be mindful of. They won't be as responsive to other cues um, in terms of tightening, which is why I think they are adamant that they're not going to need to tighten for some time. I'm really glad you brought that up because our mutual friend James Aitken highlighted that. I have a real low opinion of central bankers, but I literally about fell out of my chair the first time I read that. You know, he he highlighted it in, uh, I think it was the last piece that he wrote before he uh, had to go on quarantine. And uh, I must have read it about four times. And I thought to myself, exactly what you're saying, only I took it one step further. I, I think the other central banks are going to say, you know what? Our mates in Australia, they got this correct. That's what we need to do. I mean, you can see that they want to do it, especially the Fed, because the Fed's let itself get into this social construct of, well, do we have the right kind of unemployment? I mean, Janet Yellen is really leaning in that direction. You know, we really want to get the people of color level or the underemployment. They've got so many different ways to rationalize it. I think they're going to let the thing run as hot as they possibly can. And I hadn't been able to articulate how they might do it. You just did a brilliant job of saying, okay, they're going to disregard all this, this, and this. They're going to go to that. And I, I think that's a very persuasive case that you make. And uh, I don't think very many people are ready for that sort of uh, a change in in how the central banks view things. No, no, I, I agree. I think you know, part of it, <laughs> I think, is a central bank mea culpa because um, it goes back to what had been central bank best practice pre-pandemic and, ironically, you know, one of the, the, the key movers on how central bank best practice developed over the preceding two decades was obviously the RBNZ, who was the first central bank in the world to enunciate an explicit inflation target. And guess what? That caught on also. Um, now, what, what, what became central bank best practice through that era was firstly, well, we have a tool, interest rates, that work with a lag. So if we're going to target inflation... We can't set monetary policy with reference to current inflation rates because we're going to respond too late. So we're going to have to uh, base our monetary policy adjustments on inflation forecasts. And guess what? They pulled out that old war horse, the Phillips curve. So effectively, 
That became the framework for which central banks set policy. What that boiled down to was they became wage-targeting central banks. And every time wages went up a bit too much, they took the heat out of the labour market. And they did that because they thought they knew where full employment was. Well, when they let things run hotter in, in, in the aftermath of the GFC, they kept on going, oh, we thought full employment was six to six and a half. No, it's, it's actually five and a half. No, so it's, it's five. No, it's, it's four and a half. No, four. Actually, we've got it down below four. We still don't have wages breaking out. So they're feeling, I think, guilty for, ah, we've been suppressing wage growth through a lot of the last two decades on a bunged-up model that we were relying on because we, we had to have policy set on a forward-looking basis. Now, this, to me, is why... No central bank in the world is now really telling us they're going to be setting policy on a forward-looking basis. And if you're going to think, okay, that means I'm going to allow an overshoot, how do you make that consistent with your target, which is 2% in the US? I know what we do. We change the target. We're no longer targeting 2%. It's now 2% on average, which obviously facilitates the overshoot. They know is going to happen as an inevitable consequence of looking at inflation on a contemporaneous basis and wages on a contemporaneous basis and trying to find out when they get too hot. There's no preemption in the world anymore. And as I said, I think that's partly a mea culpa for, for what they had achieved in the last two decades, which was really keeping labour markets way too cool because they didn't realise where the Nauru was. Um, so they're on a guilt trip. It also fits with the, the political um, sort of zeitgeist, which has changed. Um, so we're now at this stage of let's run things hot enough until we find out not when inflation breaches our target, but when wage growth gets to a level that inflation breaches our target. And I, I think we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see that everywhere. Um, so we're guaranteeing an inflation overshoot, um, but it's all, it's all, as I said, a response to, to the mistakes of the last couple of cycles. Yeah, this is really interesting. And, and, and what I want to wrap into it, if I can, is a comment you made right at the top of this about your main fear being that governments will return to austerity too soon. So just, just expand upon that as a fear and how that fits into what we've just discussed, because the, the two seem kind of at odds with each other. Yeah, no, look, um, my base case, my base case is that we're in a new regime of fiscal dominance uh, that reverses many of the multi-decade trends that we've become accustomed to throughout our, our careers, and inflation risks are skewed to the upside. That's the base case. But I always want to come back to remind people that this is not a fait accompli, and although many people have this sort of mental image of politicians uh, unable to control themselves when it comes to spending, I think the reality's been quite different. Um, a lot of politicians have got political mileage out of the old austerity uh, governments like a household. We, we can't, as, as the Prime Minister down here in Australia said, we can't run a blank check economy. Um, and if they do uh, flip the switch to austerity too fast, uh, we could, as I said, we've seen in Japan several times, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, um, prematurely tighten and... Uh, effectively get us back into the quagmire because, you know, the other key point here is the underlying causes of secular stagnation, I think, remain powerful. Of, of the half a dozen factors I always rattle off, 
Only one of them, which is globalisation, has probably run out of steam. But most of the others remain as powerful as ever. So we're in a world where it's fiscal or bust. If we do get fiscal turned down prematurely, we're back in the quagmire of disinflationary, soggy growth. Um, you know, we've not we've not reversed the underlying causes of this. So um, we've we've got to watch this risk. Um, I, I don't think it's a risk for this year because there's just so much momentum uh, in in the economies around the world, at least the developed economies, and the stimulus has just been so enormous. Uh, that's going to probably even carry us into next year. But if next year we have you know, politicians talking about the need to, to, to have budget repair and, and austerity, um, then you start to go, hmm, they, they, could, they could make a monumental error here um, and they could uh, dial down growth uh, prematurely. Uh, so let's see. It's not going to be an issue for this year. It's, it's next year. But as I said, I'm just trying to address the, I think, the misconception that politicians are always spendthrifts. They've got a track record, in my view, of being unnecessarily um, tight-fisted, and it's been one of the problems the last, uh, last 10, 15 years. Fascinating. So let, let's talk about, from a practical standpoint, uh, what this is going to mean for portfolios. Because as, as we've said before, there isn't a portfolio in the world hardly that is set up for this. And, you know, if it is a 2022 problem, which it may well be, is it a case of just stay on the horse for now? Or how do people need to be thinking about their portfolios and the adjustments they need to make? Because as you alluded to at the top of the hour, it's not that simple. No, no. And and uh, it's probably going to require to be fully inflation-proofed um, a move into weightings that, no one has and no one's thought of. Um, you know, I mean, do you know any funds that are six? I mean, sixty percent commodities, um, at least balanced funds. I mean, I know there's dedicated commodity funds, um, and taking out other forms of insurance, but with the unfortunate characteristic that they're probably going to cost you money. Um, I mean, to take something very simple, and I'm not. I should say I'm not a guru in in trade construction, and that's where I bow to you, particularly you, Flett. Um, but you know. It used to be effective to own some bonds along with your equities, and that would provide a hedge. If that no longer is the case, you, you might just uh, you know just roll over some out of the money puts. Now we all know the problem with that is you know, nine years out of ten, it's going to be a drag on performance. There's going to be the tenth year where it pays off, but nine years out of ten, it's a drag. Um, so the, 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 you are absolutely worse off as an investor because you, there's no way I know to buy insurance devices that effectively. Pay off now. Of course, if you've got exquisite market timing, um, knock yourself out. I mean, you don't need to listen to this podcast for starters. Just keep on timing the market perfectly, and I suspect you're going to be a top decile performer at least. Um, but for me, muppets like us who who don't don't have that skill um, and have to prepare ahead of time, then you know, within an equity portfolio, rotation is absolutely essential. I mean, there are differences in how companies perform in inflationary environments. Um, across asset classes, really, uh, you know, bonds just don't prof- provide many of the functions they they have over the last 30 or 40 years. I, I don't know why you don't bonds anymore. Um, there, are, there will be times when they will outperform equities, but that by and large is going to be because they are not equity. And 
cash can fulfil that function just as adequately without the volatility on a mark-to-market basis or the risk that you go through a period of rising rates where you can actually make losses on your bond portfolio. But then you've got to look at what are the effective inflation hedges, such as commodities. You might also look at, I mean, we didn't in the 70s have instruments like inflation swaps. I mean, obviously, that's, they're great because they've got no basis risk. So you might, you might look at that, uh, take, taking them on, a, on, on as well. But it's a portfolio that looks completely different to the sort of portfolios that we've had over the last three decades. And, oh, by the way, if rates are going up, don't make it too levered either. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Since you're knowledge, since you're quite knowledgeable about Japan, you know what's going on there. Grant, Grant probably knows something to say. <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly where you're going. <laughs> um, I waited an hour. <laughs> which, which, and listen, and well done for doing so. Okay, so we know the BOJ owns, let's call it half the um, JGBs. I don't see any reason why they will ever reduce their balance sheet. So I guess I have a twofold question. Will they sort of formalize the fact that they've got this asset on the books and maybe, you know, they can make some swap with the MOF, you know, another piece of paper with like, you know, one basis point, you know, effectively they will crystallize the fact that they have monetized half the debt and it's behind them. You are you already noted that they've turned around a lot of different facets of what's going on there. And so would they be better off to say, oh, by the way, we don't really have this debt anymore. It's not really bothering us. Do you have an opinion of how that will play out? And based on how you think that might play out, will there be any interesting consequences to that, to the fact that the world can look and say, wow, the BOJ monetized half the debt and they got away with it. Maybe we should think about doing that. Anyway, uh, over to you. Great. No, great. Great. Uh question and the phrase I'm going to pick up from that was uh, when you said it's already behind them. My view is in, in every important economic and financial way, um, there's, there's been a de facto monetization. Um, and if you want to make it de jure by cancelling the debt or transferring it for some for some other you know, token piece of paper, yeah, do it. But that's not going to change the reality. The reality is already here. The, yes. the debt has been monetized, yes. and yes. Um, of course, what, what does monetization mean? It means you've swapped something that's got a mature a maturity date, and you're paying a coupon on for something that's a, a non-redeemable zero coupon note, i.e., cash. You've done an asset swap, and that's 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 all we've done. And uh, I think it's. I cannot see any of these central banks moving to reduce their balance sheets. Um, And if you think about, I mean, there was a debate there for a while after the GFC, after we had QE2 about the sequencing of how central banks would go back to normal. And, you know, some people argue, well, before they move rates, they'll they'll sell their, you know, reduce their balance sheets. I'm thinking, hold on, you're telling me that macro conditions are strong enough that the Fed's thinking about tightening policy, which would be an environment where bond yields are rising, you're telling me in that environment the Fed starts dumping bonds onto the market? I mean, that doesn't guarantee, that doesn't risk a bond market crash. It absolutely guarantees it. So I, I think these, these, these central bank balance sheets are lobster pots. Uh, you get in there, but it's impossible to get out, um, and it's, it's a de facto monetization. If we were then to see 
then formalise it. And they could just cancel the debt. Yeah. Or if they wanted to do a, you know, the, the MOF issues them a, a, a trillion-dollar non-redeemable security, whatever. I mean, it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. I, I think the world wakes up and goes, okay, yeah, no, the world goes on. If, if there was any reaction... And I said this in the context of the US back back after after the, the GFC when they were doing their QE. You know, people say, how would the Chinese react if if the Fed cancelled all the debt on its balance sheet? And my response was, I assume they'd love it. Because they're there looking at the dynamics of the US budget deficit and debt going, hold on, we know they're going to have to screw someone. That's that's clear. They're gonna have to screw someone. And then you go, oh, they've screwed themselves. Okay, that's great. Because we thought they were going to screw us. So I, I think that the, the, pe- the thing people miss about all this is we're talking about the central banks cancelling the debt that they've already lifted from the private sector, which if you've still got some debt in the private sector, you would think makes you more comfortable. The only way they're not going to have outright debasement or need to do monetary financial oppression, which goes back to one of the things Russell said, which I, you know, um, Russell Napier was talking about the need to have financial oppression. My point is, if you're doing QE, you don't need to do financial oppression. What you're actually doing is you're sucking the treasuries out of the private sector's hand, you know, putting in the bottom of a mine shaft and saying, well, no one is ever going to see them again. Um, but you you can hang on to your treasuries. Now, the reality is with, with rates now where, where they are, once again, who wants to own a, a treasury? Um you know, this could easily be a 10% nominal GDP year for the US. Why do you want to, in a 10% nominal year, be in a treasury that's paying you less than 2%? I mean, it makes no sense. So it's a dumb investment. But I don't think we need to go to the extreme lengths of financial oppression today like we did in the aftermath of World War II um, because we now have a new instrument, which is QE, and buying bonds off the private sector and throwing them to the bottom of mine shafts. It's, it, it works fine. Does the fact that they have gotten away with this, people have a knee-jerk reaction, in my opinion, to anything financial that happens untoward that's, you know, bigger than a breadbasket. Oh, my God, we're going to have deflation. And what they really mean is depression. You know, They say deflation, but they mean depression. And that's always been the sort of Damocles, you know, the, the debt to GDP in Japan. So it seems to me that they've taken a big piece of the deflation puzzle card off the table by doing that. I mean, they've, we, we, they've already done it. So, I mean, I was wondering, did you think that will factor into people's minds as you know, people are always quick to look, leap to the deflation when we don't really get it? And so now that they've done this and they realize central banks can do that, do you think that would maybe hasten the belief that, oh, inflation is a more likely path since they've already shown us how they won't? Go down the deflationary path. Well, this, this is the marvelous thing about the whole debt and central bank debate. Um, I, I feel like I'm in the middle, getting shot by both sides, because I've got some people on that side saying all these deficits are going to lead to high inflation, and then you've got people on this side saying all that debt's going to lead to sustained disinflation. I mean, so that's, you've got the Russell Napier there, and you've got your lazy hunt there. I'm ducking and weaving. There's bullets flying everywhere. Um, I disagree. I should just duck and they can shoot at each other. But, um, you know, my, my point is that the, the, the debt story um, 
as as you keep on correctly saying, Flick. They've done it. They've done it. So here's, here's my stat on Japan. Public sector debt to GDP, if you look at the OECD data on a gross basis, is over 250% of GDP. So that's the, that's the number we use to scare the children. Once you look at net, uh, you're down at about 120. Once you take off BOJ holdings, you're down to about 25% of GDP. I mean, like what problem? What problem? Um, now, this, this is where I disagree with Lacey. Lacey will then say, ah, well, they've breached the debt-to-GDP threshold and that's why they're growing so slowly. I'm going, no, they're not. They've actually, on a per capita basis, effectively been as good as the US over the last 10, 15 years. I, I strongly disagree with the view that there's any uh, sustained correlation between public sector debt levels and growth. I just, you know, the, the, the reports that show that, like Reinhard Rugoff, frankly, in my view, junk reports. Um, and <clears throat> so I absolutely think, to, to answer the people that are shooting at me from the from the right side, I, I think fiscal works. I don't think having high public sector debt damps growth. And I particularly don't think high public sector debt damps growth when your central bank is funding you. So the gross amount is completely different to the net amount. And so to transfer that to the US context, if you look at how much interest payments the federal government's paying on soccer debt, um, it's, it's exceptionally low. Once you take account that a lot of those payments are going to the Fed, it's it's at multi-decade lows. I mean, we, it's, it's a game changer to have these central banks taking the back of the fiscal authority. Um, even if you and I don't like it, we can't express it because the central banks have got their foot on the throat of the bond market. Um, but more to the point is, you get away from all these issues of high public sector debt, it's, it's not there. It's not there. Um, so this, this is why I'm so convinced that this shift to fiscal policy will work so long as politicians continue to, to push it hard. So for me, it's not an efficacy question, it's a willingness question. And that's, that's yeah, I think they will be willing, but there is a risk that they may chicken out. Just before we wrap this up, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, I have to say. I can't thank you enough for this. But when you say this is why you think the fiscal will work, just paint me a picture of it working. What, what does success in this context mean? Uh, well, um, I guess the first thing I have to admit is, you know, monetary policy is sort of one-dimensional, particularly back in the days when they used to adjust the rates up and down. Um, fiscal comes in a thousand different flavours and, it absolutely is true that different types of fiscal stimulus have, have different multipliers. Um, you know, we saw Mr Trump's package almost sink without trace in an economic sense, and I guess that's what happens when you give billionaire tax cuts. It doesn't change their behaviour that much. Um, I think you'll see a bigger stimulus effect from Mr Biden, which has got tax cuts directed at low end, but then ultimately what the evidence suggests is that things like infrastructure spending... Um, does have quite quite effective multipliers. So what does it look like? I mean, it looks like an economy that just is running hot. Now, th there are better and worse ways to stimulate. I mean, I'd rather people spend on infrastructure that leaves a long-lived asset. And, I mean, it can also be human infrastructure, so it can be not education. So I I'm all for doing that. But you know what? If they do it dumb, even that'll work if they do it in size. I mean, you know, it's the old 
uh, as, as Kane said, you know, I can pay someone to dig a hole, I can pay someone else to fill it in, that's still going to have an impact. I mean, it's a dumb way to stimulate, but it's going to have an impact. Um, so it, it really just is an economy that's running hot, hopefully, hopefully, with the icing on top that you're actually spending money in a way that enhances longer-term productivity. And I just want to pick up on that for one, one moment because I said before that fiscal policy is an effective antidote to the forces of secular stagnation, but it's not a cure. I broadly think that, but here's the interesting thing. I think if we start to run an economy hot, we may start to reverse some of the underlying uh, causes. And let me focus on, on one that is central to what central banks are trying to achieve, which is, which is wages. Now, we've had a soggy wage growth uh, in most developed economies over at least the last 10 years, in some cases, for longer. And the standard view is, well, of course, wage growth has been soft. Labor productivity growth has been low. And you can't pay your workers more than their productivity. Well, why has productivity growth been slow? I think the causality goes the other way. If you were running a business over the last 10 years in the aftermath of the GFC, which turned out to be an extended cycle, but there were always periodic scares and, you know, it was a highly uncertain environment. But if you finally got to the stage where you needed to expand your capacity, you have two options. You can do some capex which increases your capital labour ratio and presumably therefore leads to higher labour productivity. Of course, if the cycle rolls over, you're left with excess capacity. Or because labour is cheap and plentiful, you just hire a few more workers, now you're lowering your capital labour ratio so they're less productive, but they give you flexibility. The whole cycle rolls over, you can fire them. In other words, I don't, I'm not sure the causality went low productivity led to low wages. I think it was as much low wages reduced the incentive to invest, which created low productivity, which means if we start, if we genuinely start to get decent wage growth coming through, you know what I think we'll see? Much better business investment. And as night follows day, if you give your workers more capital, they will become more productive. So it's going to be an interesting experiment. Run this thing hot for a while, and we may start to reverse some of the underlying causes of secular stagnation. That's a story for a few years away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's it, you know it's so so interesting. And and you're right because what that does is by running it hot, the only thing that will likely suffer are financial markets. Right? It's the final game that means you know what you've had your 25 years in the sun. Now you're going to take a bit of pain so that labour gets readjusted in its share of the pie. And it makes sense. Oh, imagine, imagine if uh, you know, Jay Powell's there you know, under a congressional grilling and he, he's forced to admit, yes, my policies are now favouring Main Street more than Wall Street. Do you think that would be a, a bug or a feature from his perspective? <laughs> right. Uh, I think right. it's a feature, you know. Um, no one wants to be seen to be taking Wall Street's corner anymore. And, um, I mean, you, you can absolutely understand the politics of it and... Yeah, I try and analyse markets in a, in a value-free way, but you know, my assessment is a, a lot of the the deregulatory, um, you know, small small government policies were flops. I mean, look at how we ended up. Um, and 
you know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, tax cuts to stimulate growth, particularly when you've got tax cuts, tax rates as low as that, it, it, that doesn't, doesn't work. Um, so, I mean, that's my views. We perhaps have a debate on that in a different, different uh, session. But ultimately, the, the political pendulum is turning partly because of the politics, but partly because the evidence has accumulated that a lot of the things we thought um, operated in the economy didn't actually work out that way. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to hold you to that, that you'll come back and we can have that other debate another time because this has been um, it's been fantastic. It really has. A, 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 I've just loved every second of it. Mate, listen, before you go, there are going to be plenty of people I guarantee you who are going to want to find out an awful lot more and, and interact with you and find out a more about what you do and b try and expand your thoughts. So so please let everybody know how they can uh, how they can find out more about it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, I am so far from the technological cutting edge. As I said, I only started listening to my first ever podcast uh, six weeks ago. Um, <laughs> if you go to my website, it's just going to say it's under construction, as it has been since I launched Minac Advisor seven years ago. Um, <laughs> So, uh, look, if you're on Bloomberg... It's a shovel-ready project, though, right? It's a shovel-ready yeah, project. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's been a shovel-ready product, project <laughs> for seven years. Uh, if you're on Bloomberg, I'm on Bloomberg. You can just Bloomberg me. If you're not, just send me an email at gerard, G-E-R-A-R-D, at minacadvisors, or one word, dot com. And, uh, I'll, put it, I'll put it. I'll make sure it goes up in the transcript and everyone can see that. Fantastic, mate. Listen, thank you so much for joining us and, and being a part of this debate because you, you've added so much to it. I can't. I can't even tell you. And and give our uh, give our love to James when you see him. Yes. Um, and make sure you put him back on the plane to London. Correct. Okay. Great to chat, boys. Let's do it again some stage. Definitely. Thank for you. sure. See you, see you, Grant. See. You. Well, I got to say that was. Just wonderful. I enjoyed every second of that conversation, Bill. Yeah, and uh, here we are, whatever it is, 15, 16 episodes later, and we finally got to have a whack at the BOJ monetization question. You're thrilled, aren't you? I can, perseverance, I can sense it. perseverance pays off. But I, I'm, still, I'm still willing to bet 50 bucks that he's not the last person you asked that question to, though. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, I'm not taking that bet. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it really did, you know, kind of set a load of bells off in my head. And, and this idea that, you know, the shift to fiscal and the shift from deflation to inflation is the end game. And that, you know, it's not necessarily a policy decision. It's the direct result of either policy decision or policy misstep. We won't know until it happens which one of those it was. But, it you know, maybe that regime change is the end game. And the end game, and when we talk about we move from here to there, as I said in the podcast, what that means is you need to come up with a way to construct your portfolio to not kill you during an inflationary time. Maybe that is the end game. Uh, I, I think so. It's, it's a variation of what my hunch has been for a while. But of course, it's not binary. It's not a black and white moment in time. It's a continuum. And what I thought he did a particularly great job, at least for my thinking, was kind of filling in some of the nuances of how this change may happen. Like I said, when I read what the RBA said, it kind of floored me that they were so direct about it. Yeah. But I thought, hey, that's what they're all going to do. And then you, you piece that together with the other things. And it just, but he's the first person that we've talked to that kind of had a sort of a, a step-by-step, or we kind of talked about how we got from 
40 years of disinflation that we've sort of experienced to where we might be going into something different. And uh, hopefully everyone will find that as a useful way to think about how things might change and how a, a, a change of some rather large proportions, even though it might not be like a binary step function, is in front of us and it's going to be a whole different set of rules that sort for lack of a better way to say it, that you need to do well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, look, mate, thank you for being a part of this. And all, all that's left is to thank you out there for listening to us. We really appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter, should you wish to do so. You can do that very easily. Uh, I'm at TTMYGH. And I'm still at FlatCap. Still there. It's never going to change. All right, mate, look after yourself, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, great. Thank you. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.